1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I am joined today by my guest, Nicholas Tochka. Nicholas is a writer specializing in the politics of post-war music making in Eastern Europe and the Americas, and works at the Conservatorium of Music at the University of Melbourne in Australia. His latest book is Rocking in the Free World, Popular Music and the Politics of Freedom in Post-War America, And is published by oxford university press nicholas thank you so much for joining me today
1: thanks for having me bradley happy to be here
0: so to get things started please share with us what your book is about
1: so it's an alternative history of rock music in the united states from about the 1950s to the 1980s um it sort of comes from a sort of Point of uh, suspicion or at least curiosity for me about the kinds of stories that americans have long told about rock and roll that kind of reached their apotheosis in the 1980s into the 1990s a kind of triumphalism about how rock music liberates you or emancipates you as an individual uh, and how it kind of works as a political agent especially outside of the United States in emancipating or liberating peoples of the world. Um, So really, the book kind of traces that history of how Americans learned that rock was this political force and how Americans learned that rock could make you free.
0: So your book opens with the 1988 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, uh, covering Bruce Springsteen's speech inducting Bob Dylan. And while your book isn't about those particular artists specifically, you discuss them through a lens focusing on the label of freedom, what applied to rock music. Can you tell us why you started with that moment and how you define freedom in the context of rock music?
1: It's a really interesting moment. Um, so the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is and became an institution for consecrating particular kinds of musicians and particular forms of music making, uh, I think in the past couple of decades, we've seen that that's really been open to a lot of debate about sort of who gets consecrated and who becomes part of the canon. In that particular moment where Bruce Springsteen is inducting Bob Dylan really encapsulates a lot of key threads in the discourse about the power of rock music as viewed by Americans by, by that point in time, by, by the end of the 1980s. Um, So Springsteen, for example, talks about how certain kinds of music free your mind, certain kinds of music can liberate your body. He name checks Bob Dylan, uh, who, of course, uh, is kind of this cerebral 1960s singer-songwriter figure who's been sort of much lionized over the years as someone who frees your mind. Uh, He identifies the white rock and roller Elvis Presley as someone who liberates your body. Uh, And in his talk, he also gets in a few jabs at other kinds of music. So he name checks, uh, sort of the sort of, uh, music. That's in, in poor taste. That's not serious. That's too pop or that's too commercial. Uh, and so it's really a, a fascinating moment that kind of encapsulates these ideas about sort of the power of rock music, uh, and puts it strictly in these terms of freedom and emancipation of both body and mind. Um so when it comes to thinking about freedom and how I'm defining it I'm an ethnomusicologist which is someone who studies the cultural and social or political significance of music making kind of an anthropologist of music and so I'm really attentive to the ways that people use language and the kinds of value claims they make in asserting that this music does this or that music does that and so I'm led in this project and in framing the book, uh, in thinking about how people have made explicit claims about music's liberatory potentials using this keyword freedom, uh, which, as I tried to show over the book, uh, was contested over the course of uh, sort of this post-war American genre of rock and roll, whether or not it did signal freedom or whether it maybe even was a a, sort of an agent of, of brainwashing or repression. Uh, And I tried to unpick these different threads of the conversation to show how we get to this moment in the 1980s when rock can stand for freedom with a capital F, at least in the minds of people like Bruce Springsteen or rock critics or uh, music historians. So in your book, you explore this freedom concept
0: in rock music across multiple decades. So I want to start from the beginning of the 1950s when you write about uh, DJ Alan Freed presenting the big beat. What was that and why was it such an important moment?
1: Yeah, so this is a moment. This is one of these um, sort of uh, exemplary moments that I I pick out throughout the book. And I'm trying to sort of retell the major stories that Americans have told about rock music. Um, So Alan Freed is uh, sort of a notorious figure in the early days of rock and roll, uh, someone who has later presented himself as kind of breaking this black form of music for white adolescent listeners. And the moment that I pick out early on in the book is one of these so-called rock and roll riots, So Freed was a promoter and an organizer as well as a DJ, and he staged a number of these uh, different musical events. Uh, This was a President's Day weekend event that I look at in the first chapter. And it's fascinating for me because uh, it was an event where there was sort of uh, violence and young adolescent listeners who are kind of screaming and going wild. This is sort of the stereotypical uh, sort of rock and roll riot where people kind of lose control of themselves. And what I try to look at through the lens of this event are just the different kinds of expert discourse that are brought to bear on the music. So think pieces by uh, so, you know supposedly serious journalists who are trying to think about what the social significance of this music are in venues like the New York Times, also looking at gossip columnists who are writing about musicians and, um, uh, at this period. And then another really important strand that often gets left out of the story, or if it's put into the story, gets caricatured, um, the forms of expert knowledge from psychiatrists or psychologists about what exactly is the mechanism by which rock and roll affects adolescence. And so it's a really, uh, for me, at least in the book, I take it as an event that sort of articulates all of these different threads of discourse and debate about the power of rock over the adolescent body.
0: Let's dive into that psychological aspect of, of adolescence. Um, so rock music is really appealing to teenagers, and, um, and they're often considered to be society's weakest link. And you write that with the politics of post-World War II America suggesting that popular music was going to have a negative psycho-political effect on them, Um, this seemed like a rather large existential threat to the conservative culture then.
1: Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so what I'm really trying to look at here um, are these psycho-political effects uh, as people at the time sort of conceived them. And you're right, Uh, there is sort of a set of, uh, maybe I'll go back just, just one step to look at how these uh appear to be existential threats so i'm really interested in the way that rock gets situated or contextualized within sort of post-war cold war knowledge economies about human bodies about human identity and about individual let's say cold war subjects Um, so There's a large body of knowledge that emerged in the 1950s and the 1960s in the United States about what a a healthy, normal individual looked like. Uh, It was someone who had uh, uh, integrated themselves into society that they had passed from this sort of fraught adolescent stage and had become sort of a member of uh, society, a healthy individual member of society. Uh, A second part of this Cold War Form of knowledge was that there are certain kinds of societies that uh, promote the health of the individual and that successfully help someone pass from this stage of adolescence to being a healthy member of society. And lots of people have written about this in various contexts, looking at, for example, the, the nuclear fam- family. Uh, so what I really wanted to look at here was how debates over rock and roll riots, debates over the effect of rock music on individual adolescent bodies, um, how this got caught up in sort of the the ferment of all of those discourses and expert ways of thinking and talking about human bodies uh, and specifically about how the adolescent body came to be seen as a a site of, of danger, something that needed expert care and uh the ways that popular culture um were seen as potential uh, threats
0: so at the center of these debates over rock and roll is this issue of conformity being a threat to american productivity which in it extends to concerns over democracy at large and i wanted to get a sense at exactly what the anxieties of these critics were
1: yeah So there are a couple of different anxieties here. Um, One of the anxieties, I think, has to do with the rising power of adolescents as consumers, uh, how they're spending their time, how they're spending their money. It's a recognition of young people as kind of an emerging commercial force. Um, A second anxiety of course has to do with uh, race and it has to do with the white consumption of uh, music making by african-americans and then subsequently the adoption of uh, musical practices that have been coded as black by white performers um, and then i think that there's kind of a, a larger set of anxieties in terms of conformity and it has to do with who the United States is and and where they fit within the world. Um, So what makes the United States different from other areas of the world, and specifically in this 1950s Cold War context, how the United States defines itself as different from the so-called second world, so a communist world that's defined as being quote-unquote unfree, um, as well as distinct from a modernizing so-called third world.
0: So you had mentioned that race played a huge role in this, but there was also other factors as well for conservatives uh, who were really concerned over the social and cultural influence of liberalism. And around this time, many would advocate for major domestic reforms and strong government intervention. And I wanted to know what was the correlation between race and overall liberalism? And could you tell us more about that conservative issue over that social and cultural influence
1: well within the context of the book one of the things that i try to look at uh are the specific debates about um sort of technology and media and uh the ways in which um sort of uh on the one hand The Soviet Union and alternative political systems uh, get defined as somehow lacking freedom, as somehow using technology to uh, brainwash individuals, and the ways that those debates get transported into the United States. Um, So there's a lot of conservative debate at the time uh, about the, uh, we can maybe call it less debate uh, and more anxiety, about the power of media and technology and about the ways that um, uh, popular music can reach these new markets of young people. Um, now, in addition to these kinds of anxieties about the mass media, and, and we find these anxieties on both the, the left and the right uh, in the 1950s into the 1960s, um, there's also a specifically conservative anxiety about the ways that music that seemingly integrates musically white and black expressive forms that potentially brings together white and black listeners into the same spaces during the 1950s itself can be coded as anti-american um, and so we see this uh, I look at this in the book in specifically in terms of sort of far-right movements, um, people who are associated, for example, with the White Citizens Council in the South, uh, later looking at some people who are uh, Birchers, members of the John Birch Society, or at least Bircher adjacent. Um, And uh, this is something that's a little bit trickier, I think, to to tease out. Um, I think there's a way in which, uh, subsequently, uh, rock and rolls... um, Uh, sort of, um, uh, integration, let's say, um, is something that is either, uh, historicized and critiqued in subsequent literature, um, or at the same time, it's, it's part of the larger discourse about what makes America, America, um, the way that this is a, a kind of specifically American music, uh, but this is a discourse that comes much later, um, into the, in in the 1960s and, um, then afterwards.
0: We were discussing earlier about the big beat and you write that this resulted in something you refer to as the depersonalization of the individual. Can you tell us what that means?
1: Yeah. And actually this is, uh, sort of one of the most, uh, fascinating, uh, parts of the literature that, um, I, I think doesn't often get, um, uh, sort of, uh, uh, doesn't often get discussed or doesn't actually um, get sort of uh, put into the historical record accurately. Um, So this larger problem about the the depersonalization of the individual comes out of a a lot of different forms of expert knowledge in the 1950s that we've either kind of forgotten subsequently in the history of rock and roll, or that we kind of hold up as um, sort of an example of Uh, Oh, look at sort of how crazy these conservatives were in critiquing rock and roll. Um, I'll I'll give you one example. Um, So in the 1950s, there were a number of different psychologists who wrote articles about the way that rock could be used to brainwash individuals or to kind of disintegrate personalities. Um, And... Oftentimes, we we kind of hold this up, and I'm guilty of it myself. Earlier in my career, I would sort of assign these articles in the uh, from the 1950s to, to show students the kind of panic that surrounded rock and roll. Um, but I actually think there's there's a bigger Cold War story here that at least I initially uh, didn't really understand until I was working through this book, um, and it has to do with a, a number of different forms of expertise. Um, For example, there was a Dr. Ewan Cameron, uh, someone who was associated with MKUltra, the CIA's, uh, the U.S. government's brainwashing program, who had all of these different theories about the ways that um, uh, sort of different uh, forms of madness could be contagious. Um, And so rock and roll for people like Cameron or William Sargent, another psychiatrist I write about, um, was a really good example of the way that, uh, and let's go through the steps. First, rock and roll sort of convenes a large number of adolescents. Second, it sort of makes them act out. It makes them kind of uh, in very spectacular ways lose their lose their minds, quote unquote, and. Um, singing, screaming, crying, these kinds of uh hysterical images that were published in places like the New York Times or Life magazine. Um and then third it it seems to spread. It seems to sort of um be a form of contagion that can sort of spread among adolescents. And it's kind of a biopolitical anxiety about the way that a population of people can somehow be um affected by a, a form of, of mass culture. And, you know, of course, this is within a larger um, sort of uh, knowledge economy in which these images circulate through glossy magazines, through newspapers. Um, and it's also within a larger knowledge economy in which parents and other experts are talking about the, the so-called teenage problem or the problem of rebellion versus conformity versus individualism.
0: One thing I found really fascinating about your book is that even though you focus on the, on the American mythos of rock and roll, you, you explore that concept uh, in other countries as well, specifically from the perspective of rock and roll as a form of diplomacy. And there's an interesting story about a rock and roll dance contest in Egypt. And there, and I want to quote the reporter from the New York times, um, that you quote in your book because he says to those seeking fresh ammunition for their warfare against the imperialist west this american importation had become a symbol of united states policy in the middle east and i just wanted to hear more about that you know tell us a bit about that uh, dance contest and how exactly this could be perceived as like
1: a form of diplomacy sure and I think that that's, uh, well, first of all, the the dance contest and the way that it was um, uh, reported on the United States is sort of part of a a larger story about rock and roll's export to places uh, in the world that the the U.S. um, was attempting to engage in uh, soft power. So through diplomacy. Uh, but also through um, covert military actions. So throughout the the Middle East, uh, throughout Sub-Saharan Africa, throughout Southeast Asia um, at the time. And so this was a rock and roll contest, and it it really encapsulates a lot of these tensions. Um, It was emceed by an African-American man who had been rejected from medical school in the United States and who had been offered a place in an Egyptian medical school uh, in Cairo by uh, Nasser. And so on the one hand, this is being reported on in U.S. papers as a uh, a sort of uh, form of soft power, a form of diplomacy that shows that uh, look at these people out in the so-called third world or these people outside uh, in areas of the world that are sort of becoming strategic to post-war American um, political economy. Um, they love us, they, they love the music. Uh, it's a fad, it's one of our most important exports. Uh, but then on the other hand, you have these tensions about, well, how does this make us look to the world? Are are we sort of sending our our best out to the world? Do we want to be known for rock and roll? Do we want to be known for African-American forms of musical expression? I'll just note kind of parenthetically that the rock and roll case is a a really interesting contrast to the way that the US State Department exported jazz music to the rest of the world. very much sending out African-American musicians as ambassadors to kind of, uh, demonstrate how the United States, um, uh, sort of, uh, was a place where, um, the, the kinds of racial divisions that, uh, for example, the Soviet union and, uh, other, uh, cold war competitors of the United States were, were saying, um, that there were all these divisions in the United States, um, the, the U.S. State Department was, was sending these ambassadors out to sort of demonstrate uh, a, a kind of racial uh, harmony, um, of course, with, with a lot of negotiation and a lot of, of tensions. Um, but the rock and roll case is really a fascinating contrast in that the United States, a lot of commentators really ambivalent um, about, about its global export.
0: I think this conflict is really fascinating, because on one side, you have rock and roll seen as a form of diplomacy, while on the other side, there's this view that rock and roll will complicate America's standing with its allies. And this is all happening during the Cold War. And I wanted to know how much of that, just the whole Cold War shroud of it all, how much of that was an influence? Or do you, I mean, you can't really like speculate on this in hindsight too much, but from your expertise, would you have seen something similar to this if there wasn't that kind of conflict hanging around?
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a good question. And um, I love speculating, so I'm happy to speculate. <laughs> um, I, I think that for me, maybe maybe um, the way that I would answer that question is that I think that one of the really important conditions of possibility in which rock and roll could enter into these debates, um, and could exemplify all of these tensions, uh, really has to do with, uh, this imagined cold war subject that, that we've been talking about for the past, the, uh, the past couple of minutes. Um, so I think that sort of the, the way that Americans experience, experience themselves, um, as citizens of a democracy, um, as consumers, um, as people in the world who were different from, for example, um, citizens of the second world or citizens of the so-called third world. Uh, I think that this is the ground on which rock and roll could take on all of these meanings that we sort of have come to see as as natural.
0: So there's an interesting idea you explore in your book and what you say mass production of rock and roll motivated serious critiques about the anti-democratic nature of popular music. I wanted to know what you meant by that. And what are some examples
1: of songs that speak to that? Sure. Um, And again, uh, this is sort of one of these big kind of uh, classic debates that at least music historians. And I I think a lot of people who are rock music fans would recognize. Um, So, There's a large discourse, especially in the early 1960s, around whether or not rock and roll is a fad or not. Um, One of my sort of favorite genres of uh, think piece about rock and roll are all of these pieces that came out right around 1960 to 1962, 63, that are all predicting the demise of rock and roll. Um, Looking at it uh, through this uh, kind of... uh, uh consumer uh consumerism critique lens that this fad is going to give way to the next fad and so for example young people are already moving away from rock and roll music and they're starting to listen to calypso Uh, and when you read these authors there's a real kind of uh hopeful tone in 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 their um approach They're, they're kind of hoping that rock and roll will give way to to something else This gets tied up with a lot of other kinds of anxieties about technology and and about the mass media and about what we're consuming. And and some of these debates, I think, would really be um, uh, um, things that we recognize today as as being coded as specifically quite conservative. Um, So, for example, uh, there was debate in um, uh, in the U.S. Congress over uh, over payola. And these scandals, um, where DJs were taking uh, money, were taking bribes to play or to push or promote certain songs. Um, now that's a story that's I think been told uh, really very well, and it's been it's it's been told a number of times by by other authors. Um, but when I tell that story, uh, I try to look at the the way that um, uh, Paola was not just uh, sort of a problem about, Um, uh, I I try to look at the ways that payola became a problem about um, sort of what technology and what media looks like in a democratic society. Um, And so there are these really um, uh, interesting transcripts that, if you read it one way, you can see that it's a debate between different actors or players in the music industry, um, between sort of this earlier Tin Pan Alley model of songwriting and this new um, form of songwriting that, that resulted in, in rock and roll. Um, but um, And so you can see sort of d- debates between Tin Pan Alley songwriters. Um, Frank Sinatra got involved to denigrating rock music. Um, but the, the story that I want to tell by looking at the Paola debate um, is the way that a lot of really explicitly Cold War rhetoric gets, gets laid over the top. So, for example, there's a U.S. congressman who speaks specifically about an electronic curtain that has come down. That's kind of, uh, he analogizes to the iron curtain that's uh, separating sort of the free world from the communist world
0: this idea of rhetoric is really fascinating to me because, so we're talking about the early sixties now and conservatives viewed rock and roll as having a lot of, um, communist rhetoric in it and not just rock and roll, but other kinds of forms of music as well. Um, one example being the folk revival scene on a Greenwich village in New York, which had left-wing politics at its center. And we had mentioned Dylan earlier at the beginning of the interview, um, regarding his rock and roll induction but before rock and roll and pop he came out of the folk revival scene there and in that scene he ushered a fascination with what pop singers thought about political and social issues and i wanted to get a sense of how and why this fascination about musicians positions on political and social issues came about at this time
1: I think there are two things to, to say about that. Um, the, the first thing is that folk music in this folk music scene in the early 1960s uh, itself kind of mirrored these debates between um, uh, or debates that would come about um, commercial folk music versus authentic uh, folk music. So people who had real political messages versus people who were just trying to, to make a quick buck. Um, And there were a number of really eloquent, um, really politically engaged um, people involved in the scene who uh, framed these politics in really explicit ways. Um, Dylan's a really fascinating character that I I use in the book um, to sort of make a link between um, sort of some of these debates and the new values that began to be associated uh with rock music after 1965 or 1966 um i, I see uh, a number of uh important critics in the united states as playing a key role in articulating these new values to dylan and then subsequent to dylan's uh so-called uh sort of uh turn to you know uh electric music to, to rock music Um, These values uh, sort of remained and could then be applied to other artists as well. So to take as an example, um, the music critic Robert Shelton, who really explicitly um, lists the kinds of um, uh, political values that Dylan Dylan exemplifies in his music. Uh, At at one point in, in a review, he lauds him for his coruscating uh, inquiry into the, the nature of freedom. Um, and that's where I think we start to see some of these more explicit values related to freedom uh, be applied first to Dylan and then subsequently to, to other artists. Also around this
0: time, there was this new ushering of a paranoid view of American politics. and I And I wanted to get a better understanding of that paranoia.
1: Yeah, and and it's interesting. This this is actually something that um, in the book I, I I feel like I only kind of scratched the 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 surface of. Um, so of course there are a number of these kind of major uh, statements, like um, Hofstadter's uh, book on sort of um, sort of paranoid American um, politics. Um, I think that there's a larger post-war shift that occurs, and a number of different people um, have uh, written about this. Um, Timothy Melley, in particular, is someone that I, I draw on uh, quite a bit. Um, and In fact, it's, it's sort of a larger debate that we find in academic disciplines today, too. Um, this idea that underneath the surface, there are sort of we, we can kind of see what's what's really going on, so that we can potentially read between the lines of something like a, a song lyric or a, uh, a a government press release um, in order to find out what's really um, sort of moving um, politics. Um, it's it's kind of a, a suspicious reading of. Um, um, sort of different phenomena, whether it's it's media, whether it's political statements, whether it's the newspaper. Um, and it really gives birth to kind of a flowering of a variety of, of different things. So I, I think a lot of liberal Americans would say that one of the negative things that comes out of this period is the rise of conspiracy theories and conspiratorial thinking. Um, if, if we apply this to rock music, we can see sort of the emergence of a number of different kinds of uh, conspiracy theories, both on the left and the right, about popular music. Um, so for example, some of them are fun, right? Like by the end of the 1960s, we have theories about Paul McCartney being secretly, uh, ha- having secretly died and the Beatles leaving clues throughout all of their albums. This becomes sort of a, a fad at 1969 among college students in the United States. Um, We also see sort of a shift in the way that young people consume and make sense of uh, rock music, uh, speaking about rock music specifically here. Um, So sitting down and really listening to the lyrics and trying to interpret them and trying to understand what they really mean and what their messages are, whether or not they're uh, there's a kind of a surface level message, but then if we really uh, subject these to exegetical readings, we can understand what the artist is is really saying.
0: I wanted to ask that question about paranoia in American politics because we're talking about the early '60s, and you know, six decades on, the this idea of paranoia has only really grown in our culture to really dangerous levels, and. We don't have to talk about any of that because um, you know, we're it's not relevant to the book, and it's also very frustrating because it's happening in the now. But one besides just how that's evolved, one thing I really found fascinating is you you talk about mythology and current paranoid conspiracy conspiratorial views in rock music are built upon that just that compounded mythology. And when I think about The flattening of the media landscape and the decreasing of media literacy and now even AI with its algorithms just creating an echo chamber, we see these mythologies just continuing to grow. And I bring that up because you write in your book that there's really no good way to write about 1966 to 1970, which you describe as the most over-mythologized five-year period in the history of American popular music. And... I, I could not think of a of a better way to describe that period, and when I see how that period is considered and documented now, it's all built on myths. So I was wondering if you could talk about that over mythology. That author, tongue tied here. Uh, that that ongoing mythology of that period in rock music.
1: Yeah. No. A- absolutely. Um... So maybe I, I, I can answer that a, cu- a couple of different ways. Um, I mean, I think that there's one way to, to look at that over mythologization. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think that w- one way to look at that is is um, through the sort of um, just the practical um, side, sort of the production of knowledge about, about this period. And, and this is a generational thing. Um, so I grew up in a house that was filled with history books by Philip Norman, biographies by Ray Coleman. Um, And there was a real huge market for people like my dad who grew up in the 1960s, listening to the Beatles and listening to Bob Dylan. And there's a certain kind of form of um, generational consumption, I think that gave rise to sort of all of these um, sort of, you know, self-congratulatory stories. um, These stories that, sort of portray this period in sort of m- mythical terms. I think another way to answer that question, though, is to think about sort of what myth does in this context. Um, one of the points I try to make in the book is that the the ways that um, political power is ascribed to rock music from this period, from the late 1960s, and, and I'll note that I've started to shift uh, not using the term rock and roll, but now talking about rock music, where it, it sort of drops that, uh, that um, sort of end part um, and kind of within the myth, within the, so this sort of mythical discourse uh, enters its mature form. Um, and I think that one of the, the really important things that this myth-making does is it um, represents uh, political power in a particular way that rock music has its power because it is this kind of um, uh, form of expression that changed our culture. And in so changing our culture, it sort of changed our minds. Um, Sort of the the short version of this that uh, is the title of a book and also something that a phrase that comes up in a lot of uh, very early retrospective uh, attempts to make sense of this period is that the music in some way uh instituted a revolution in the head that it sort of changed how we thought about the world um, and what i tried to do in the book is point out that this is a um this is really a, a <laughs> uh something that we should question and we should interrogate um that if we subscribe to the view that politics is something that um works through our changing thoughts and changing ways of thinking about the world. um, Well, then that takes up a lot of space where we aren't having conversations about politics, working through, for example, changing material conditions.
0: So rock music became the soundtrack of the counterculture during the late sixties. And that mythology has continued. I mean, you can't watch a movie or a TV show now without hearing the same Hendrix, you know, all along the Watchtower cover, or Buffalo Springfield's, for what it's worth. Whenever there's like something like Vietnam or whatever, um, and a lot of that is because of the hippie movement. You have you know the flower children, Summer of Love kind of thing that has contributed a lot to that because it was very much based in music. But conservatives saw that movement as. Dangerous reactionary politics, and you even had other musicians as well who were very uncomfortable for that movement. Or I think of Frank Zappa as an example of someone who was very resistant to this philosophy that you know some considered to be inauthentic. Um, but despite that enduring resonance of this hippie counterculture, it was a very turbulent time in the sixties. You had a lot of race riots. You had uh, the the. The Democratic National Convention riot in Chicago. It was not a fun time, and I wanted to understand how rock music played a role in that at the time.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a, a really, r- really um, um, astute observation, or, or that you made at the at the beginning of this question about about um, the way that certain kinds of songs have become shorthand for describing this period of time. Um, so something like all along the watchtower or Buffalo Springfields, uh, for what it's worth. Um, you, you also noted, um, sort of Frank Zappa and some of these <coughs> people who have, um, proposed all, al- alternative views, uh, or have been really, uh, quite cynical about the, um, uh, power of rock music I, I think that my my answer to this question is that um I, i'm sort of skeptical of the idea that rock music formed some kind of a soundtrack that uh americans all were listening to or that americans all were um uh, in some way uh, agreeing that it it exemplified or in some way sort of captured the essence uh of a moment. And I know that's not exactly what, what you were saying, but I think that for me, um, in the book, what I'm really interested in, uh, uncovering is, is, um, sort of how that soundtrack, uh, comes to be naturalized. It's, it's almost a trope in memoirs or first person accounts of the late 1960s for, uh, an author to begin by saying, um, listing all of these things that it was a turbulent time. There was Chicago, there was this, there was that. Um, and then making the jump or the leap to and rock music was the soundtrack of of this period. Um, one of the things that I I try to do in in the book is to uncover how a lot of musicians at the time and not not just Frank Zappa, um, but were quite skeptical about what precisely um, they were doing. Um, I end one of the chapters by looking at Leonard Bernstein and this inside pop music uh, special that he did, uh, where in kind of pretty sanctimonious terms, um, he's kind of addressing adult mature listeners, uh, explaining to them that we should listen to this music as having a message. And that because young people are so important, we need to listen to that message. We need to hear what they are, are saying. Um, and within the late 1960s, this enters into uh, sort of a new form of uh, expertise or a, a new set of knowledges about, um, uh, that came to be called, for example, the problem of the generation gap, uh, the problem of understanding the youth, um, sometimes this got articulated to political um, uh, political movements, so by the early 1970s, the move to change the voting age. Um, sometimes this got articulated to uh, larger new left anti-war movements, that if, for example, you're old enough to go fight in Vietnam, you should be old enough uh, to vote, and uh, rock musicians uh, had had kind of an ambivalent relationship um, to these politics. So that, for example, on the one hand, um, some of them were involved, for example, in that campaign I just mentioned about lowering the voting age, um, or even began to, to perform at rallies for certain kinds of um, politicians. Uh, so, for example, McGovern in 72 uh, put on a number of um, different shows that featured people like, like James Taylor. Uh, although we, we also see this kind of across the, the political spectrum, this trying to harness uh, the power of the, the youth, uh, sometimes in kind of uh, goofy ways or, or in retrospect ways that um, sort of uh, seem humorous uh, to us. So for example, uh, Richard Nixon put on a number of youth shows that uh, Sammy Davis Jr. headlined.
0: So in your book you cover the 1950s through through 80s we spend a lot of time talking about the 50s and 60s and in the 70s you explore how the late 60s activism response to rock and roll was having an issue with how the genre was be- was becoming more intimate and navel gazing and then you also ha- you, you go into talking about how the role of rock music plays in this new wave of conservative politics that's ushered in with the Reagan administration. And there's a lot of fascinating information in in, in the book, and we don't have enough time to cover that here. But I wanted to ask you about the future of the rock and roll narrative. And I wanted to read a quote from your book that I found really compelling in which you say, and exceptionalism makes so many demands on Americans. It obligates them to live outside history. And asks them to experience their lives as defined by the many freedoms they enjoy, especially in the face of overwhelming odds, and even in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. And I found that so interesting because rock music is no longer the dominant cultural force that it once was, and you say that as its narrative begins to dissolve, we can begin telling new stories. With with that in mind, what do you see as the future for the rock and roll narrative?
1: I think that for me, and... In writing this book, and and here I think I should maybe out myself as having been a a rockist, as someone who bought into a lot of these narratives, um, who at least as a young person, um, really divided the world up in in ways that um, I thought of myself as someone who had the right kind of politics because I was listening to the right kind of music. And and this might kind of betray my age. I'm not sure that Uh, young people think about or consume music uh, in the way that we would have, for example, in the 80s and and 90s. I I think that for me, there are probably two ways to to conclude this. Um, One is that there are so many stories and myths Uh, surrounding rock music and rock and roll from the 50s into the 80s and even into the 1990s um, that are still left to be explored and historicized and contextualized. I think that there's still work to be done in picking apart these stories in trying to understand um, sort of not not just sort of, uh, how how they came to be, but but really, what I tried to do in the book is to look at the larger conditions of possibility that allowed Americans to talk about and think about popular music and, and by extension, media, technology, and popular culture more generally. Um, so I think that there's 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 still stories to be told about those conditions of possibility and ones that may sort of disagree with with um, my take. Um, and I think that the, the other way to answer that is that, um, I think that a politics built on symbols and representation, uh, politics built on image and what we can even think of as branding of musicians, uh, is one that we should be skeptical of. Um, I think it's, it's one that takes up a lot of, uh, potential political energy that could potentially be directed other places. Uh, You know, I wouldn't want to, (laughs) I I have my own ideas about where that energy should be directed. Um, But I think that readers of the book, um, I I hope that that's what they they come away with, is is thinking about the um, uh, sort of the uh, uh, amount of space that these kinds of discourses and narratives and myths have taken up in the political imagination of Americans. Uh, over the second half of the 20th century.
0: Nicholas, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a really fascinating book, and I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: Thanks so much, Bradley. I had a great time.
0: My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest today, Nicholas Tochka. His latest book is Rocking in the Free World, Popular Music and the Politics of Freedom in Postwar America, and is published by Oxford University Press.